we live in an amazing time in civilization. How many of you own a computer or smartphone, something that you can get on the internet with? You possess that, own it? Sweet. How many of you with one of those have ever tried Google Earth? See Google Earth? How many of you, if your hands are up, went to find your house on Google Earth? Yeah, me too. One of the pictures I found of ours, I zoomed in. You get pretty close with that thing. And if you were to look and look in the front of our house, you'll see my wife working in the yard. She hates it because she was bent over at the time, but it's there. You can tell it was her. If we were to take Google Earth today and we were to Google Earth Saratoga, New York, we could find a battlefield where in 1777, two battles of the Revolutionary War took place. On this historic battlefield, if you look at the end, you'll notice a monument. It's a grim reminder of what happened there. At the base of this monument are four alcoves for four bronze figures, figures of the generals who fought there so heroically. In the first one, you would see a statue of Horatio Gates. In the second one, you would find a statue of Philip Schuller. In the third alcove, you'd find the figure of Daniel Morgan. When you came to the fourth, it would appear strange. There is no statue in the fourth alcove. It's empty. It was built for a general whose performance during the battles merited honor and recognition. However, later, he committed an act of treason, and they removed his statue. At the base of that, you can still see his name. It's engraved there in the stone. The name is that of Benedict Arnold. And this little statueless alcove will stand forever as a monument of a person who went from hero to traitor. In Christian circles, if I were to mention the word traitor, most, if not all of us, would go quickly to the name Judas Iscariot, a follower of Jesus, a member of the crew, the Big 12, one chosen by Jesus. But he became the betrayer of Christ. He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So it begs me to question, what does a traitor look like? How do you identify a traitor? If we continue to look at just the two we've mentioned, Benedict Arnold was a highly decorated military hero. He was a member of the Sons of Liberty. He rose to the rank of general in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. But he switched sides. Maybe it was a lack of recognition. Maybe it was his wife, his new wife's desire to have more things. Maybe it was just the money. The bottom line is he switched sides. Judas is mentioned some 60 times in the New Testament. Some of those are duplicates, but he's a prominent figure in the New Testament. Judas, like most of the people in his day, was looking for the Messiah. He felt like he found him in Jesus. He was willing, at least early on, to latch on to the teachings of Jesus. And Judas was shrewd. He was made keeper of the money bag, not... Matthew, the former tax collector, but Judas. And among the way, along the way, he began to distance himself. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. It seems that all of this came to a head on the night when this woman anointed Jesus with an expensive oil. I'm pretty sure it was an essential oil because those are expensive. <laughs> Judas refuses to see the significance of the moment. He complains that the money was wasted and that it should have been given to him. I mean, given to the poor. 
So what does a traitor look like? I'm going to ask you to hold on to that thought because we're going to take a side trip, but I promise we'll come back. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that today that your Holy Spirit will speak. I pray that your word will come alive in our soul. Father, I pray that you will change us because of the time that we spend together studying. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Now, bulletin lookers, I know that's not the passage in there. We're still going to get to that. So, Today you get a little aerobics, we're going to stand for this passage, and then in a little bit we'll stand for the next. That'll be the last one I ask you to stand for. But if you would, stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 7, the words of Jesus. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You can be seated. I've always loved that little gem, that little story told by Jesus. You get the picture, right? You've got two men building a house. Jesus doesn't tell us that the two houses are next door to each other, but for the sake of illustration today, let's pretend. Let's say the houses are next to each other and they're being built at exactly the same time. How many of you have ever built a house? Maybe not you, but you know, you built a house. All right, well, for the rest of us who've not had that great frustration in life, today I'm gonna make you a house builder. You get to build one of the two houses. And you don't get to pick which one. You're going to build the house built on the sand. <laughs> I know it's not fair, but it, it's okay. So we begin with the foundation. You know that you need a footing to build a house. And in our houses, we're not going to build a basement. We're just going to have the slab floor. You can finish your house out any way you want. You can put tile, carpet, hardwoods. But let's say that when you begin the building, you get ready to put the footing down your area is not really solid. In fact, it's sand. But looking at it, you decide if I tamp it down really well, I can go to Alabama Reynolds and get a tamper and just go to work on that and it will pound it down and it will seem solid. And it does. It seems solid. And then you look and you realize that your neighbor has this large slab of rock under his house. But do you know how much it would cost to pour enough concrete to have that kind of foundation? And besides, when have we ever had enough rain to cause a problem, right? So you both now have your subfloor in place, and you've started the walls. You've stubbed in the plumbing, the electrical. You put in a roof. You got it in the drive. Put in some windows, some doors. Nice shingles on the roof. Oh, I see that you went with a tin roof. Good for you. I hope your HOA is okay with that, but it's probably not a thing. You're going to sheetrock the walls and the ceilings, put in some nice flooring, you decide to go with central heat and air because we are in the south and your plumbing and electrical is now finished. On the same day, you both decide to do some landscaping. But for some reason, your neighbor's grass is greener than yours. And finally, both houses are done and you move in on the same day. Now, for the neighbors across the street or on each side, they've been watching the process and it looks to be exactly the same. Two houses go up 
from the ground up. Two families move in. And I don't know how long you live there, but you live there for a while. And then it starts to rain. And at 2.30 in the morning on the third day of rain, your house collapses. It's a foundational thing. So when we go back to the message, I want you to keep these two thoughts in mind as we stand together and look at John chapter 15, reading together from God's word, verses 1 through 11. Again, Jesus is speaking. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, that your joy, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. You can be seated. This is a rich passage. I just finished on Wednesday night teaching through the I am's of Jesus and they were all amazing. And basically in those I am's, Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. When we got to this passage and I began to teach on it, and I realized there are some potential problems here, but they're really not problems if we're kept careful to keep the passage in context. So you really can't separate the words of Jesus here in John 15 from the beginning of the discourse if we go back to chapter 13. In case you're unfamiliar, in chapter 13, we see Jesus celebrating the Passover with the disciples. I'm sure you're familiar with that passage. Before they eat the meal, Jesus washes their feet. And Jesus tells them there's a betrayer among them. Later, Judas departs and goes to, to the religious leaders to betray Jesus. So this is the context for John 15. Judas is gone. There's Jesus and the 11 disciples. You've got the speaker. You've got the audience. Keep this in mind. If we keep this in mind, we don't fall into the trap of drawing some conclusions that aren't supported by the text. We also want to frame this passage with a little bit of history. Jesus says, I am the true vine. In the Old Testament, God frequently refers to Israel as a vine or as a vineyard. Because of the association, the vine was often used as a symbol for Israel. It was used on the Maccabean coins. It was used on the gate of Herod's temple. They used vine like we use the eagle here in the U.S. It's a symbol. It's something they identified with. It's something everybody knew about. Um, they were familiar with it. But almost every time in the Old Testament when vine or vineyard is used, it, it's used in a negative manner. In most cases, it's because Israel had been unfaithful. They had failed in their task. God's plan was for Israel to be his people. 
his idea was for them to represent him. They were to show the world how you place your faith in the one true God. When Jesus uses the word in verse 1, true, he's declaring himself to be the true vine, the real vine, the genuine vine. Israel had failed to carry out the task assigned to them by God. They failed. Jesus had not failed. Israel was the vine, but Jesus is declaring that he is the true vine. He had been faithful. He had been obedient. He is the one and the only one that provides the way to God. Those seven I am's in John, Jesus, after the feeding of the 5,000, announces, I am the Messiah. I am the bread of life. He's in the temple. They're having the, the feast. The lights have been up in the sky. People could see it from all around. And Jesus' teaching says, I am the Messiah. I am the light of the world. Jesus, speaking to a group, says, I am the door. You pass through me. He says to a group where there were Pharisees, I am the good shepherd. <laughs> the Pharisees were the shepherds of Israel. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I can be depended on. I can be counted on. He's at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus announces, I am the resurrection and the life. He's talking to his disciples and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And then here in John 15, Jesus announces, I am the true vine. We look at the words true vine. If we keep looking and move to verse 2, we see that there are two branches that Jesus identifies in verse 2. And then we're going to see what Jesus has to say about these branches. To understand this passage, I think we need to see how Jesus identifies the branches because I think in identifying the branches, he is actually identifying us. So hold on to the context, hold on to the history, hold on to the audience. And we look at verse 3 and Jesus says, already you were clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. That already is the key word. Already means something has already happened. And to find that already, we go back to chapter 13. And we go back to the washing of the feet when Peter says to Jesus, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head as well. In John 13, 10, Jesus answers, those who've had a bath need to only wash their feet for their whole body is clean. And you were clean, though not every one of you. Judas is still in the room. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. So here's the first of two points I want to make today. Jesus is speaking to those who were following him, the 11 remaining disciples. And he says to them, there are two kinds of branches. He's saying to them there are two kinds of branches because he wants them to be able to identify who they are. I'm going to suggest today that there is the possibility, probability, okay, everyone in here today is one of these two branches. So in telling the story, Jesus is speaking directly to us. First, there were the branches that represented those who were clean. Why were they clean? Because of the words of Jesus, because of their faith in Jesus, because they were going to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus with their whole life. Second, there were the branches that represented those like Judas. I have called them the Judas branches because I think it's not just Judas, but I think there are multiples of these. The Judas branches have an association with Jesus. They're identified with Jesus but they never put their faith in him alone. They were not clean, to use Jesus' words. So with these two classifications in mind, now we can identify the two types of branches. 
Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. This would be those people that have only a superficial connection to Jesus. These would be the Judas branches. These aren't, as some people complain, Christians that wandered away from God. I think it's pretty clear if we look to see the fate of the branches because they're gathered and they're thrown into the fire. Um, I think that these aren't people, some people say that the verse means lifted up and it's a picture of of God gathering the uh, unfaithful back into his love, which is a beautiful picture, but really doesn't fit the text. Jesus says, if you remain, if you don't remain in me, you're like a branch thrown away and whether someone picks it up, throws it to the fire, God doesn't do that to his people. Others have tried to claim that this verse shows that if you're a genuine Christ follower, you can lose your salvation, but that violates what we read in John 10, 10, where there's the picture of Jesus holding us in his hand and God holding his hand over and we're his forever. So we can't lose those things. We don't do anything to earn our salvation, so we don't do anything to lose our salvation. It is secured in Christ, in Christ alone through faith. So if we look at the context, I conclude that these branches are Judas branches. They represent those people like Judas, they have a superficial connection with Jesus. If you were in the day of Jesus and you saw Jesus and the 12 people go by, you would look and assume that all 12 of those people were sold out, connected, believer, followers of Christ forever. And in this picture, we see that it's not true. There was a traitor in the midst. There's ample scriptural support for this. If we look in Romans, this one passage, we're going to pull out Romans 11, Listen to verse 17. Paul here is just describing how Gentiles were grafted into Israel, how they became part of the vine. In verse 17, Paul says, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. But then you will say, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, hear this. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. There is so much more to this passage than we can cover. But here in verse 20, the reason that the branches were broken off was because of their unbelief. The Judas branches there because of Judas's unbelief, his failure to believe that salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. The Jews, as a people, claimed to be God's people because of their heritage, but because of their lack of faith, God had broken those branches to make room for those who would come to him by faith. It's the same picture that we see here in John 15. The branches are broken off because the believers had never put their faith in Christ alone. Like Judas, they had some association with Jesus, but they were more identified with him than connected with him. They were never genuine Christ followers. There are a lot of branches like that still today. They call themselves not Judas branches, but Christians. They may go to church, they may read their Bible, they may do good works, in the name of Jesus, so they can become identified with him. But they have never genuinely placed their faith in him alone as a means to relationship with God. 
These are the people, I think, this Judas branches that Jesus addresses near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Then I will plainly say to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So if the branches that do not bear fruit represent those who only have a casual association with Jesus, then it becomes easy to identify the remaining branches. Jesus says every branch that does bear fruit. It's the bearing of the fruit that proves out the genuine Jesus followers. In this passage, Jesus goes on to describe what the life looks like of a genuine Jesus follower. The first thing he says is, they abide in Jesus and Jesus abides in them. The word Jesus uses here, the word abide, he uses 10 times in the passage. It's probably a good word for us to look at because even though we've heard the word, it's not a word that we use. None of you on your way out today will say, I'm going to abide and eat lunch. We know the word, but we don't use the word. And it's a word that John uses. It, it's kind of got a, a wide range of meanings, but all the meanings have to do with remaining or staying or enduring. But when we get here, probably the best way to understand this word is to use the phrase remain or abide means to make a permanent home. So Jesus is saying, if you abide in me, you choose to make a permanent home with me. And Jesus then says, and I will abide in you. I will make a permanent home with you. A genuine Christ follower is someone who makes their permanent home with Jesus and in whom Jesus makes their permanent home. Jesus provides for us the model of this kind of relationship. That's what he did when he walked the earth. He would say, I love the Father, the Father loves me. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. I abide in the Father and the Father abides in me. And Jesus says we're to have that same kind of relationship with him that he has with the Father. We are to make our permanent home in Jesus. That's what it means to be the branch on the vine. Jesus wants that relationship for us that he had with the Father. That's the goal. So the question is, does this describe your relationship with the Father? I spent a lot of time there this week because I want to make sure that that identifies who I am. We're going to look at some practical ways to do that in a minute. But the 11 disciples that were there, when they heard these words, if we were to look at them immediately after the crucifixion, they, they hide, they kind of scatter. But if we look at long term, we see that everyone improves to be a genuine Christ follower. They make their home in Jesus. Jesus makes their home in me. Jesus and Jesus alone is the foundation on which we build our homes. We build our lives in him. A second characteristic of a genuine Jesus follower is, as a result, they produce fruit. Not just fruit, much fruit. Ultimately, it's not possible to be a genuine follower of Christ and fail to produce fruit. Jesus made it clear that the way we prove to be his disciples is by bearing fruit. Actually, he said by bearing much fruit. If it's important for us to bear much fruit, it's so important that the Father is going to prune us so that by pruning, we can produce more fruit. The goal is producing fruit. So what exactly 
It's the fruit that Jesus speaks of here. Well, there are some opinions about that. Some people say that the fruit is the production of new Christians, new converts. You're sharing the gospel. It's evangelism. And the fruit are people coming in to the kingdom. I've always had a problem keeping my mouth shut. And my church had gone to BJCC to hear a well-known pastor preach a well-known sermon. The title of the sermon was Keeping the Main Thing the Main Thing. So my church went, my church staff went, and I went, boy, he, oh, he, he, he did it. He preached a powerful message. But his message, the main thing in his message was evangelism. How we need to be about everywhere we go, everyone we talk to, the key is evangelism. And I listened to the message, and it disturbed me in my soul. So they were going to the van, and I was going to stand in line. And I stood in line, and I shook his hand. I said, man, that was something. What a powerful message. But I'm concerned because you just told everybody here that the main thing is evangelism. And it's not. The main thing is our personal relationship with Christ. And he looked at me and said, but everybody knows that. And we don't. And Jesus in here, when he says, produce fruit, it's important to tell people about Christ. That's not the main thing. That's not the fruit specifically that I think Jesus is talking about here. So then others want to say, oh, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's mentioned in Galatians and other places. And I think both of these ideas are part of what it means to bear fruit. But in the context of this passage, I think we define bearing a fruit in a broader way. I think here, bearing fruit means manifesting Jesus in our lives. I honestly think that is the main thing. It is our personal relationship with God. Out of our personal relationship with God comes telling people and bringing them into the kingdom. It's living a life that is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. It's not one or the other. It's Jesus manifests in our lives, and out of that manifestation, these other things happen. We can see this lived out in the lives of Peter and John post-resurrection. In Acts 4, Peter and John are brought before the Jewish leaders because they had healed a lame beggar in the name of Jesus. So after Peter speaks, this is how the people reacted. We find this in Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astounded. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Jesus was manifested in their lives. They saw the works of Jesus in the lives of these men. They recognized that Peter and James had abided in Jesus and that Jesus had abided in them, that Jesus was being manifested in the way they lived their lives here in the ministry of healing. Earlier in the chapter in Acts 4, it says, but many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. <laughs> There's your evangelism. They abided in Jesus. Jesus abided in them. And as a result, many people came to Christ. As a result, they did the works of Jesus. So maybe you're asking, if I want to be a genuine Christ follower who abides in Jesus and who has Jesus abiding in me so that I can bear much fruit, how should I live? I have four suggestions for you. It's found in this passage. The first is allow God's word to prune your life. Remember, this passage was spoken to the 11 disciples who were 
the branches of the vine, not a Judas branch. These are for people who are genuine Christ followers. Jesus says the Father will prune branches that abide in him so that they will be even more fruitful. The pruning is to produce more fruit, not to produce fruit. You're already producing the fruit, and God prunes so your yield becomes larger. God intervenes in our lives to make us more effective in manifesting Jesus in our lives in order to make the vine more productive. The vine dresser, Jesus identifies him as the father, prunes the sucker branches off the branches that are producing fruit. I'm not really a gifted grower. We have a beautiful Japanese maple tree in my yard that we killed last year. So I'm not really the guy to talk about growing things. So when you don't know what else to do, you go to the internet, right? So I go to gardeningknowhow.com. <laughs> Sounds legit. Um, I think it really is. And we've been talking in the spiritual, but I want to show you how closely this resembles the physical. This is from their website. While you might be tempted to leave a tree sucker, remove them as quickly as possible. A tree sucker will sap the energy away from the healthier and more desirable branches on top. Chances are you will not be pleased by the fruit produced by the tree sucker. Remove them to improve the health of the plant overall. It goes on to say tree sucker removal is easy to do. Tree sucker removal is done in the same way pruning is performed. Using a sharp, clean pair of pruning shears, cleanly cut the plant sucker as close to the tree as possible, but leave the collar, they put this in parentheses for people like me, where the tree sucker meets the tree to help speed the wound recovery. Perform this tree sucker control as soon as you see any plant suckers appear so that they put less stress on your tree. When there are Judas branches on the vine, they should be pruned. When there are Judas branches in your life, they should be pruned. How do we know? How do we prune? Well, our fruit production is not what it should be. And so God comes in with his word and he cuts the tree suckers off. These spiritual suckers, these Judas branches keep us from being as fruitful as God desires. So God comes and he prunes them. Sometimes he does that by allowing trials and difficulties to come in our lives. Sometimes in the midst of a trial of difficulty, we see things that are keeping us from being fruitful, as fruitful as God wants us to be. The trials don't do the pruning. They just expose the tree suckers in our life. The only way to get those suckers removed is to expose them to the word of God. That's why the apostles were clean because of his words. In Hebrews 4.12, it tells us, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. Sharper than any pruning shears you can find. God's word penetrates to the dividing soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Father prunes perfectly. Anything that hampers our relationship with him, it needs to be pruned. Cut away, gathered up, thrown in the fire. We all make choices every day. For every choice we make, there are consequences. And the choosing and consequences part of life, God may need to prune you. Whenever he prunes, there may be scarring. But the pruning, the trials, they can expose the spiritual suckers in our lives. Unless we find a way to expose our lives to God's word, we never get rid of them. 
We must be people of the word. It may be painful at times, but when it's painful, we continue to view our lives through the lens of God's word. And we realize that when going through the pruning, it's so that we can yield more fruit. There are a lot of things in our lives that are much more likely to be abiding in us than God's word. A lot of times we spend our time and our money and our energy on other things other than God's word. We spend our time and energy and days on things other than the Bible. It's an exhaustive list. My list was an exhausted list. I'm not saying things to you that I didn't sit down and go through and say, oh my goodness, I need to make sure I'm a branch. The second thing is we keep his commandments. Jesus couldn't have been any clearer in this. He said, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. You will make your permanent home in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Make my permanent home in the love of the Father. Jesus was fruitful in his ministry because he was obedient to the Father. And if Jesus needed to be obedient in order to be fruitful, how much more important is that for us? We don't get to choose to be disobedient. If we choose to be disobedient, we're choosing to be a Judas branch because we are called to be a branch on the vine. The third thing that I see in this is I'm to love my fellow Christ followers. Love my fellow genuine Christ followers. Jesus continues in John 15, verses 12 and 13. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Remember where we are in John 15. At the end of John 16, Jesus is going to say, I told you all these things in me. You might have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And then Jesus goes to crucifixion where he's going to lay down his life for his friends. I think because of this later, John writes in 1 John 2, 11, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother and sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. We are to love each other, genuine Christ followers, loving each other with the love of Christ. It is not possible to be a genuine Christ follower and be connected to the vine and not love your fellow Christ followers. Jesus makes it clear how far that love is to go. It's to go to the point of being a selfless love so you're willing to lay down your life for the sake of someone else. That's why it's so appalling that petty little things get in the way of our love for our fellow Christ followers. If Jesus could ask the Father to forgive those people as they were nailing them to the cross, surely we can give forgive whatever happens between us and our true brothers and sisters who may have offended us in some way. The fourth thing I see in this is we are to pray according to the purposes of Jesus. Jesus continues, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. We bear fruit, fruit that will last because we abide, we make our permanent home 
in Christ. And when we live with that permanent home in Christ, anything that we ask in the name of Christ, the Father is going to give us. This is another one of those passages that people separate from the surrounding context. They try to use it to develop some really bad theology. Jesus isn't saying here that we can pray for whatever we want, then tack to the end in Jesus' name to the end of our prayer, and then somehow God is obligated to give us what we want. That's not the context of this passage. It means that what we pray for is to be consistent with his character and his desires. It means that when we pray, we pray for that which is consistent with the word of God. It means when we pray, we ask God to prune our lives with his word. It means when we pray, we ask him to help us to be obedient to his commandments. When we pray, we ask him to help us to love other Christ followers, regardless of how they may have hurt us. As you leave, I'd like to challenge you to think through your life. If you're breathing, you probably have some of those spiritual suckers that need to be pruned. A good way to start is to ask yourself, am I obeying the commandments of Jesus? An easy way is just to look here. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ with a sacrificial love? Do you need to go to someone and and ask to be reconciled if they're a fellow believer? Are you praying for the plans and purposes of Jesus or are your prayers more for the plans and purposes of you? Jesus said, I'm the true vine and you are the branches. If anyone remains in me, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember Benedict, Arnold, and Judas? We started with them. They were traitors. They pretended to be part of something they really weren't a part of. The problem with traitors is a traitor is much like the man who built his house on the sand. It looks pretty good until. And then when that happens, it's too late. There are traitors among us. I'd use a softer word because I know I probably offended you. But with Jesus, it's pretty clear. Think about your fruit production. If you're not producing fruit, then you're just superficially connected to the vine, to the true vine, to Christ. Because if you're connected, you get that Holy Spirit sap which produces fruit. Are you, produ- are you bearing fruit or are you doing nothing? Don't be a Judas branch. Uh, hear me, I'm not your judge. I think we're supposed to be fruit inspectors, but I'm not judging you. But I'll be honest and tell you, I've been asking the Holy Spirit to make it clear in my life where the Judas branches are. And today, I'd like to challenge you as my brothers and sisters, those genuine Christ followers, will you ask the Holy Spirit to make it clear in your life, to take the Word of God and to prune off those branches that are Judas branches? If you're not part of the vine, If you're realizing today, hey, I'm a Judas branch. I'm connected. I got up. I took a shower. I put on nice clothes. I smell good. I came. I sat through Sunday school. I sat through worship. I look like a Christian. 
if you're not producing fruit, you're not a genuine follower of Christ. You're playing the part. You're a traitor. You look like you're a part, but you're not. Today can be the day that you become a genuine follower of Christ. It's not easy to be a genuine follower of Christ. To be like the world, all you have to do is get up every day, get dressed, go to work. You can fuss and cuss in the car. You can pump stuff into your head and talk with all your friends. It's very easy to be a part of the world. But to be a genuine follower of Christ, to live a holy life, to be obedient to God's word, you have to intentionally every day remember, I'm connected to the vine. I need the word of God in my life. I need you, God, today to bear fruit. What is that fruit? It's my relationship with Christ. Out of that, it may be sharing with somebody at work. It may be living out the love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Don't play the part. Don't be a traitor. Today, also at our time of invitation, if you've been visiting our church and you feel the call of God to come and join us, we're gonna, we'll take you today. Today would be a good day to come and say, I'm ready to be a part of this church. So as we go to time of invitation, I'm going to ask you if you realize I'm a believer. I am a genuine follower of Christ. I need to get rid of some Judas branches. Or maybe you just realize I'm just a Judas branch. I'm not a branch off the vine. I'm loosely connected, but I'm not genuine. Then come today. Let us pray for you so that God can bring change in your life. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to take your word and to give a real look at this passage. Father, I pray today that in my life, in the lives of my brothers and sisters, Father, that you will expose those Judas branches, that you will prune those Judas branches, that you will burn them up and take them away so they're no longer an issue. Father, for those that are here today and they're not even connected to the vine, they're playing a part, they're coming, and they're here. Father, I pray that today will be their day to say, I am ready to follow Christ through faith and obedience in Christ alone for my salvation. Father, I just pray that in this time of invitation that your Holy Spirit will search our hearts and move in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.